Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Welcome all to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenes. So happy to have you here, and it is so great to have Nathan Ward as my guest today. He was an editor for American Heritage Magazine and has written for many publications, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Crime Reads. He is also the author of The Lost Detective, Becoming Dashiell Hammett, which was nominated for the Edgar and Anthony Awards, and he also wrote Dark Harbor, The War for the New York Waterfront. He's here today to talk about his brand new book, which just came out on September 5th, called Son of the Old West, The Odyssey of Charlie Seringo, cowboy detective writer of the Wild Frontier. Thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. So what is it about Charlie Seringo that inspired you to write his biography? Well, uh, I had read, I guess, his first book, his most famous book, A Texas Cowboy, and I had not thought much more about his subsequent life until I was doing uh, what is now my previous book, uh, Lost Detective, about Dashiell Hammett which took me to the Pinkerton archives at the Library of Congress, which whether you're writing a book or not, if you have any interest in crime history or American history, you just should go there for a day, check out some things that sound good, and they'll bring you old wanted posters, cipher code books, op reports, um, forensic files, uh, photographs of blown up trains from robberies. It's a, it's a wonderful place. And the, the, the Pinkertons originally donated it to improve their image, which had become justifiably such a, an image of union busting. And they wanted to highlight the heroic things that they, they had done, chasing J- Jesse James or Wild Bunch or you know all these train robbery cases, a number of which Seringo had been involved with. I was there to what I thought was to establish the early detective career of Dashiell Hammett, which is, it's the part that's always cited in his biography, but everybody's more interested in his later drunken years when he didn't publish very much at all, but he was in Hollywood and he knew everybody. But no one had really written a book about what I thought was the formative experience, which was he got this detecting background from which he drew all his fiction. So I wanted to read a book like that, but there wasn't one. So I, uh, 
I went to the Pinkerton archives. They had nothing on Dashiell Hammett, although the op reports that they were required to write were clearly the literary basis for his op stories that he first became famous for. So it was well worth the trip in that sense. But what they did have was many folders with references to this Charles Seringo guy, some for his heroics in infiltrating the Wild Bunch gang and other desperado gangs. You know, he was sort of a a tramp actor of the frontier. He would go around, he would track, and then he would mingle into the gang. He didn't shoot anybody. He didn't bring them in uh, uh, across their saddle. He infiltrated and then later testified. That was his, that was his uh, genius. But he was well aware of what an interesting life he'd had, and he kept publishing books about it. And they sued him again and again and again. And he wrote his autobiography five times. And so there was plenty of paperwork from their various court cases to shut him up. And I perhaps because there was so little going on, the thing I thought I was investigating, I copied all that. And later, when I came to do a book on the, on Seringo himself, and then the pandemic shut down the Library of Congress and every other archive in the world, at least I had this this stash st- squirreled away in my house to, to begin work with. It was definitely uh, fortuitous, for sure. So, yeah, let, let's go back to Charlie and his early years. He had some tragedy in his family, including the loss of his father. Yes, his parents were, I think, a very typical Texas story of the time, where they were immigrants from different countries who just landed uh, and tried to make a go of it in farming and, and ranching. Uh, once you get there, you would notice all these wandering cattle and uh, change your your priorities. I mean, this was the this was the easy free money with these things wandering around if you could hold on to them and and find a market for them. And that's what ultimately created the pathways north to the to to what became the cow towns. Uh, his father died when he was about two, so he didn't really know him. Uh, the only father that he did know uh, was uh, well. That gets ahead of us, but uh, he didn't have a good father figure. Let's just just say that. (laughs) So he grew up in a time of great drama and bloodshed. Uh, His his schoolmaster, Mr. Hale, left his teaching position to join the war between the states. Well, he was not a a stupid fellow, I think. As soon as the war was, was imminent, he realized that he would suddenly be a unionist, and, and and things might get ugly for him. So he he, he was if he was going to die, he he wanted to die in a <laughs> union uniform, and uh, from the north. So he he closed down the school. Uh, Charlie had only had a couple of years of school at that point. He would try school four times, and uh, he never got very far. That particular case was not his fault. But later, he he just seemed to have a thing with authority. He didn't like he didn't didn't like being. Keened, for instance, he didn't like um, uh, being bossed around at, or bullies, as he always calls them. He got in a lot of fights at school with what he called bullies. I think that may also had to do with he was he was a sort of a runty figure who got picked on or picked on once at least. He lived in Matagorda, 
which is sort of the mid-coast, the Texas mid-coast uh, on the Matagorda Peninsula. Uh, when he was 12, he finally uh, got a chance to be an honest-to-God paid cowboy, for at least for a season. Then when he came back from uh, the roundup that he had gone along, his, his uh, widowed mother had remarried uh, this northerner who insisted on selling her property and them all going north. He turned out to have uh, weaknesses for liquor and gambling uh, and lost almost all their money on the very ferry they were taking to, uh, to New Orleans. Yeah, that, that must have been rough. So Charlie ends up going back and becoming a cowboy in the mid-1860s. He made it back alone, not entirely sure where his mother and sister had ended up. They had to find work in St. Louis. He worked in St. Louis but couldn't find them, and he worked. then he was adopted in New Orleans by a very nice family that had no children of their own, and they they put him into a private school, and he was going to learn all these languages and become a, a cultured businessman. And he got in another altercation with a teacher who wouldn't let him go out and see a, a fire. There was a very exciting fire outside the school that he, he wanted to be excused and go watch and then come back to class. And they, that was it. And so he went and uh, he, he smuggled aboard a ferry. He made it to uh, Indianola, uh, but he then ended up working for a uh, famous cattleman, Shanghai Pierce. And uh, it was at that job that he learned proper lassoing, bronco busting, uh, all the skills that would last him uh, the rest of his life. And at some point, right, he gets his n- nickname, Dull Knife. Where does that come from? Well, he was on some kind of roundup, uh, and after they crossed a stream, he, his foot was bit by a, by a rattlesnake. And although it puffed up, he survived. And after that, he developed a healthy habit of, of whipping his, his knife at snakes that he saw in the grass from, from, from the horseback. And to the point where when his colleagues would borrow his knife, they would find it dull and they, they nicknamed him Dull Knife after the, after the chief, the famous chief. He would later use that as a, as a literary alias. And um, that's later on. What happened to his step? father his stepfather um he just ran off he had a particularly explosive drunken night and according to charlie he was chased off by the neighbors uh and never heard from again i mean a couple of times he had sent them money and urged them to come meet him where he would relocate and after that he claims they never heard from him again he also saved his mother from a flood, right? Yes, he was in uh, close to Matagorda. Uh, they were staying with what were her neighbors. He had built her a little shack to live in while he would go on these uh, these long trail rides. And the hurricane came that wiped out much of Indianola and flooded that house and peeled off the roof. And uh, he he ended up in his account uh, carrying her out of there and and saving the little kids that were living in the house. They all sort of leaned into the, 
into the wind in a way that I, I, I can't quite understand I mean, every time I read it. But they did live, so <laughs> it must have worked. And he, and he develops this ability to flit between different groups, different classes of people, uh, social classes. He, he can turn on the charm when required. Even though in his books he will sometimes use the ugly language of that time and the frontier, they're usually in quotes like it's a thing that's expected to, to be said, and there's no evidence that he ever disliked anyone that he met unless they were cruel to a horse. But other than that, he seems to have given everyone a chance that he ever met, and uh, you know, it's, it's unusual, especially in, in memoirs by white frontier writers of that time. There's, there's, a, there's one story which I took a long time to believe, but I, I finally was convinced three or four times over, but there's the story of him being shot when he was in, in, it's in 1875, and he would he would do uh, all the cowboys. They had side gigs, and and this was skinning. So a cattle that didn't belong to you, but that was near death, it was okay to skin and sell the hide. If you helped it along its path to death, then you crossed the line. And he had enraged a local rancher who sent a man named Sam Grant, a black cowboy who was uh, sometimes took on killing jobs. He rode up one night to, to Syringo's uh, fire, aimed his cult dragoon at Syringo's heart and pulled the trigger. Syringo had his, he was still sitting on the ground with his, his knee up, holding his knee. So it went into his knee instead of his heart. And then at the same time, Another black cowboy friend came riding through the trees, a man named Liege, who was holding a rifle. So Grant didn't fire the second shot and ran off pledging to get to send the doctor from Deming's Bridge, which was quite a ways. It was about 20 miles away. He did that. And this guy, Dr. Pelton, was able to reach him by sunrise, remove the ball and save the knee. Now, what's interesting to me is that he is not the hero of this story. His black friend is the hero of the story, even if the other, other guy is the villain. So it's, it's unusual in, in memoirs of that time that he's, he's willing to admit he owed his, his life to this man. So I still didn't believe the story entirely until decades later when the doctor and Charlie had both retired to Hollywood but didn't know that the other one was there. This article came out in the Los Angeles Times about Syringo, and the doctor invited him over for a union where they talked about the ball. This is also according to Charlie. But recently, uh, a friend of your podcast, Mark Lee Gardner, sent me a thing online where Syringo's, one, a, a, a signed Syringo book was for sale. And when I read the inscription inside, it said, to my dear old time friend, Dr. A.M. Pelton, the surgeon who rode 25 miles between midnight and daylight to cut a bullet out of my body. If that's not a true story, Dr. Pelton would have been very confused every time he opened his book to read. Yeah, that's, that's great. Wow. 
<laughs> and that came in. That came in after he turned. I turned the book in. <laughs> Mark sent me that two months ago. So I was like, "Phew." So uh, in in 1877, Charlie travels to Dodge City, Kansas. Can you tell us what he was doing there? Sure. The thing about about Syringo is he seems to meet a lot of famous people, but it's not an inordinate number of famous people. For instance, in Dodge City, he does not claim to meet Wyatt Earp, but he but he he did meet Bat Masterson. And that's when you check it out, that's exactly true. Wyatt Earp was not there the week he was he claims to have been there, but Master, Bat Masterson was there running his saloon when when uh, Charlie and his friend his trail friend Wes came in uh, at the end of a, of a three-month ride north. And the thing about these bars was there were buffalo hunters and there were cowboys, and they were rivals basically for the women who were in these bars. And they, the cowboys called them stinkers for understandable reasons. And his friend Wes claimed to have been insulted by one of the buffalo hunters and Charlie was asked to back him up if there was trouble. And there was considerable trouble. Soon everybody was fighting. And and Bat Masterson, behind his bar, annoyed that this had happened, was winging uh, beer glasses at Charlie Seringo's head, which crashed on the wall behind him. Finally, Wes was uh, cut with a, a skinny knife on, on his back, which is what happens when you pick a fight with buffalo hunters. That's their skill is uh, use of knives, and they made their way out of the saloon, found their horses somewhere, and rode out of town with him. He claims he was holding Wes on his horse because he was losing so much blood. He then, outside of town, he went to stitch his wound shut and saw that it was too deep because of the skill of the, the skinner that uh, he had to ride, sneak back into town, get sticking paste to close the wound, and then... They continued on to, I guess it's 15, 20 miles out of town, was uh, D.T. Beals's cattle holding pen, where he signed on, and it was a sort of a life-changing thing. He signed on with David Beals, who was about to send an establishing herd south to the Texas panhandle and, and, and start his uh, LX ranch there. And so then he just sort of lucked out. Uh, I mean, it, was, it wasn't too lucky for the friend who had to stay behind. But he then ended up working at the LX Ranch in the Panhandle, which is where he, among other things, uh, met Billy the Kid when Billy the Kid and his uh, his outlaw friend, wrestler friends, decided to, to uh, make camp. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you about that. I think that says a lot about his, his personality. He arrives back to his boss's property and there is William Bonney and his colleagues <laughs> camped out trespassing basically but instead of being aggressive hostile he befriends them he does seem to have liked most people and and the and the, the the thing to me that i didn't what thought was funny was you know they would ring the dinner bell and Billy and his friends would would go to dinner as if they as if they worked there or, or had earned a dinner. 
and he would he just thought that was hilarious. He doesn't he doesn't resent that, which is I think I would resent it if I if they came into my workplace like that. But uh, maybe I should work on that. <laughs> <laughs> so he actually exchanged gifts with, with Bonnie. Yes. Yeah, and and the two were pretty close in age, right? They were they they had a lot in common. They had a stepfather they had resented. They, they were young men who had commanded older men. And he just seems to have really admired Billy. He, he wrote more about him than anyone else except himself. I um, mean, if you add it up in his various books, he, there's a Billy the Kid section in each one. And he only met him, you know, briefly, uh, a matter of days. But he had been returning from Chicago, where he went along for the, the, the first herd that went from the LX to Chicago, the Chicago slaughterhouses. And he'd always wanted to see Chicago. So, and he, he also got to go along on the top of the train and be a cow, an actual cow puncher, which is where they would make sure the cows don't lie down and get trampled. And they, they would poke them with these long poles. But he came back, and um, these guys were helping themselves, having a campfire on his... <laughs> on the land there but they according to him they played cards they um availed themselves of the cigars he had just brought from chicago and then he and billy traded uh, his new cigar holder for whatever book billy was reading which the more fanciful historians like to believe was cervantes because it's fun to think of billy the kid wandering the southwest reading about don quixote but there's no other book that has been nominated for this. It's just the book didn't stay with him either. And and that's the, unless it was burned, it's very unlikely to me that he, that he would have just thrown away a book from Billy the Kid, considering how much he admired him in all his other books. Back after a brief word from our sponsors. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And we have returned. And then in an interesting turn of events, he joins up with famed lawman Pat Garrett. The uh, ranchers in the panhandle were tired of uh, Billy and others stealing their stock. And so they made, they, they gathered together what they called the panhandle posse, and they sent them really to get back as much cattle as they could. But if they could take part in the, the capture of, of Billy, then so much the better. But their first job was to get back a lot of cattle, which they did. He did meet Pat Garrett, and Pat Garrett had a low opinion of amateur posses, which he called a whirlwind of lunatics, which is a phrase you can't use enough, I think. But uh, <laughs> he didn't let them follow along for the, for the final part of the arrests, escape, Rearrest death uh, of Billy, but Syringo, uh, for reasons that are not entirely clear, if you take the, the position that he just he liked Billy too much, he didn't want to be in a position where he might have to fire at him, that's possible, or that he didn't want to shoot anybody, that's also possible. It was a, certainly an exciting and important time in his life. He, he really learned about. Uh, manhunting and tracking, which would be such a part of his later job as a detective, but he was not a detective yet. What I was very interested in, in, in tracking down what had happened to their cattle, they were in a tan yard and they saw the, the LX brand on a couple of skins. And he went up to uh, a, a witness who had seen a lot of cattle going through and he made up a sort of um, list like a like a mugshot of phony brands on a piece of paper with the LX brand in the middle and said, what brand did they have? And they picked it up, the LX branch. But it's very, you know, it's sort of like police work before he was actually in the law. I just thought that was, it was interesting. That, that, that is interesting. Yeah, yeah. So would you tell us about Mamie Lloyd, how he meets her? Well, also, David Beals, who was his favorite boss, sent him to uh, Caldwell, Kansas, where he was to sort of oversee his horse stock for the cattle runs. And he did that. And two things happened there. Is he, he met Mamie Lloyd, who was then, I think, 14. But 14 was not as scandalously young 
on the frontier as it, as it would be now. He met her one day when he was, uh, he was having some watermelon in this shop where he would go and tell tales about him chasing Billy the Kid. Or, you know, I'm sure they were not all true, but very entertaining to the, the kid who ran the store, who later wrote this up in the newspaper. That's where I got the anecdote. And he was there when he first met Amy Lloyd uh, with her father. And he he proposed right away after they went after they they went to church together with um, her cousin. He asked the the clerks the clerk for advice about how to conduct yourself in church, and then he dressed up and uh, he went to her father and and uh, they, they got married. They got married within weeks. I mean, basically, he didn't he couldn't bear to be apart for her from her for weeks at a time like he, like he would have had if he if he stayed in his cowboying job so he basically gave up cowboying for her uh then became a uh, he opened a, a, a business in town where he would sell ice cream oysters and these cigars that he made and that was very important because he was about to turn 30 and he must have been missing the frontier terribly. He was wearing this apron. He was, you know, sociable and, and, and making a go of it. But he, what he then started to do was write his memoir of being a cowboy. And that's what became a Texas cowboy or 15 years on the hurricane deck of a Spanish pony was him thinking about the life he had just given up. It came out the same year as Huck Finn. And, and like Huck Finn, it's, it sort of makes uh, literature out of um, American slang. From that, he thought he was going to be now a literary man, even though, you know, he went to school almost till second grade, but not quite. Another thing that happened at that time that I found out um, only because so many newspapers have come online, uh, frontier newspapers, is that he was writing a gossip column about Caldwell uh, for the the adjoining town's newspaper, and he, and he used that that dull knife um, alias, which is why I was able to find it through uh, online searches. Was, uh, I, I just had, I, I just put Charlie Seringo, Kansas, 1870, 1880, just to see. And I got these, um, these paragraphs where it's, it's this dull, the, somebody was, was saying, I'm not, ta- the author of this is not Charlie Seringo. I don't know where you'll get that idea. <laughs> <laughs> and then I noticed that the ty- the uh, the columns were written by Dullknife, and I thought, aha, that is him. So uh, that was a previously unknown, uh, you know, little thing, but it was proof that he was writing before he started writing his first book. Was that he just he just had to communicate, uh, even if it wasn't using his real name. What what a combination, <laughs> oysters, ice cream, and cigars. <laughs> well, you would think that that would be hard to get that, but those those uh, those early trains, they had the cars that they could keep them refrigerated, and he would get it, you know, on a certain day each week. That was that to me. That was one of the least likely things <laughs> that turned out to be true. <laughs> was that you could you could get oysters or or ice cream in Kansas in 1877, but you could. Well, then his first book eventually came out, and. You know, it's sort of a self-published book, and, he, and it was sold on trains by uh, butcher boys, uh, and he sold a lot of them. 
and he was very excited by its seeming success. So he wanted to move to Chicago and be a sort of uh, literary man uh, and oversee the, a larger second printing. That's where the publishers were that he was interested in. And so he moved his family, now with a, a baby and his wife, Mamie. Then money was a little slower in coming than he may have imagined. And so the Haymarket bombing happened that spring, and he he uh, was was moved by the, the, the outrage and wanted to do something about anarchism. So he went to um, the Pinkerton's offices in, in uh, Chicago, uh, not the next day, but I think also when he was starting to run out of money, because it's about a month later. And he, he went in and he asked for Billy Pinkerton, claiming to know him. People who were his intimates called him <laughs> Billy Pinkerton, but he'd never seen him. Uh, he sent a little note in from his banker, and he could give Pat Garrett as a recommendation, as a reference, sorry. Uh, he was he was invited in. They had a little talk. And then th- he is the ex- perfect set of skills that Pinkerton was looking for uh, in a cowboy detective. He wanted to open this office in Denver and get a lot of ranch work. And uh, and this is the, the, the perfect candidate, except weirdly, the fact that he had already written a book about his adventures, the cowboy, the Texas cowboy, that seems to have not come up in the interview because that's there's nothing more important to the Pinkerton agency than its secrecy and the you know that it's that its operatives keep undercover. But um, that did not come up. He signed the pledge of non-disclosure, and and uh, and he and then he and his wife and his baby move out, went out to uh, to Denver, and and the rest of his career was assigned out of the Denver office. Largely, he would be on his own in different cases under different aliases, but the the hub was the Denver office where James McParland became his supervisor. It, it, it's interesting. He and Mamie were sleeping when the Haymarket riot was occurring. And they heard it happening, and it woke them up, right? I think you're right. And Charlie wanted to go and check it out, but Mamie didn't want him to. He he loaned his gun to a neighbor who was trying to get him to come with him and check it out. I'm, I'm very impressed that she was able to keep him in the house because, you know, he seems to have run towards every other danger of the 19th century. But uh, in this instance, she was able to keep him in. I mean, she, she couldn't keep, make him take another job that where he wouldn't be away from her for three, four months at a time. But on this night, she, she impressed on him that uh, maybe it was not a good idea. So, yeah, he makes his way to Denver, and he is one of the few in the Denver Pinkerton office. And... There are some office politics going on when he arrives. The thing there was the the old man, Alan Pinkerton, had always been against expansion like that because he thought that uh, it would lead to local corruption. And in this case, he was exactly right. So a bunch of, I guess you could call them Chicago hacks, went out to establish this, this branch it just became entirely a grafty. Uh, and so when he arrived, he had to live with his boss who he didn't respect. And they would, you know, do double booking uh, for jobs and then get, get paid for the ghost jobs. I mean, it's usual stuff. 
But because he was assigned on these trips, you know, he would go, he would be away for a couple of months uh, in Durango or somewhere. He was not seen as a, a regular cast member of the corrupt branch. You know, it hadn't really rubbed off on him because he wasn't there very much. When the old man Pinkerton had it checked out and sent James McParland to take it over, Charlie was the one mem- uh, cast member who wasn't fired from the office. One, and another reason may have been because the corrupt boss had called for him to be fired so often because he wouldn't cooperate with his schemes. And that counted in his favor also. So he learns that he is really good at traveling undercover and infiltrating these outlaw gangs. And he's rough enough and social enough when when he wants to be that he can easily move within their ranks. He does. And, but I, I would say that his unusual talent that is, you know, if you, if you watch cowboy movies enough or Westerns, he's not a stoical uh, marshal. He's an actor. He would play a, a play a part. Like now I'm the, the union radical. Now I'm the tramp. Now I'm the, you know, it changed month to month. And, but especially he, he saw that he could get the information he needed by seducing the sisters and girlfriends of the bad men he was seeking. So and they would always have the letters of their common law husband with the latest address on them. That was the vulnerability that he saw that, as far as I can tell, they would always recommend him for these kinds of jobs. It, it's not, it didn't occur to his, his partner, Billy Sales, that he, that, he, that he would be especially good at that. But Charlie was magnetic to, to uh, man and woman alike, I guess, because they, this, they just welcomed him in and he would end up with uh, the information that he needed. Uh, you can't always tell how far he took these romances, but because it's the 19th century. So when he says, I, I had to fall in love with her, I had to make love with her, I don't know what he means, but, but he did whatever it took to get the information to advance the investigation. And so that's just a, it's a very interesting uh, side to it that you don't see in, you know, Gunsmoke <laughs> or the shows that I grew up with. Right, right. I mean, but then he also makes a big deal of saying how he had his wife's permission. So that may, that makes me wonder how how far it did go. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. He's a fascinating person. Right. Yeah. So speaking of Mamie, she suddenly passes away. What did her death do to Charlie? I can't prove that she was the love of his life, but. His subsequent marriages didn't last very long, and he doesn't talk very romantically about those uh, those other marriages. But uh, she seems to have been the love of his life, and she died of pleurisy of the lungs. There's a very strange factual problem about her death, which is in his books, he has an account of holding her as she coughed out the window and her last breaths in the winter. But when I went to get her obituary, it's in August. So it's, it's, it's an open question whether 
it was so horrible that he ble- he remembers it as even bleaker than it was as a winter thing, or if he just, as a storyteller, he couldn't resist making it as bleak as possible and putting it in the winter. It's, I, I couldn't resolve this, but I was, I was baffled because I thought for a while I must have this wrong. This, this obituary must be, must be premature, but, but no, that's she died in August. It's just one of those strange storytelling uh, things that you can't, I, I just couldn't resolve it. But he clearly loved her. I don't know how he felt about his subsequent wives, whom he always would sort of install on the ranch. And then he'd go off on these missions for, for Pinkerton. And he'd be gone three, four, six months. Uh, and he never quit, seemed to have quite an idea of what they were supposed to do <laughs> while he was away. But maybe he clearly, clearly loved. She was beloved. And, and his daughter, he then felt that he was unable to care for her on his own. And Mamie's aunt had come to take care of her in her last days. And she begged, having no children of her own, to take the, the, the viola with her. And uh, that's, what, that's what he did. He let her take, take viola to her home. And they, he would see her throughout the years, but not, I would say, not um, consistently. Yeah, Seringo had a reputation as a both a talented and a troubled detective. And you write that not long after Mamie passed away, he got into trouble for clubbing and almost killing a police officer. Yes. I, I think that that was uh, really towards the end. He knew that she was about to die, and he was out. Uh, I think money must have been tight because he put his favorite pistol, the old Colt's forty-five, as he called it, in into Hawk, and he was going to go get it back out when he uh, he saw there had been some kind of crime in the street, and he was trying to get a, a better view, stepping up on a windowsill or a curb, and uh, this. Uh, Patrol cop yanked him down and, according to him, tore his coat. And this infuriated him. And he, uh, yeah, he hit. He 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 says that they. It's almost like they were both went to shoot each other. But I, I I'd have to look back at the book. It's a it's a it's a confusing scene. But anyway, he was then arrested, and McParland had to come and get him out of jail, even though he had basically assaulted a cop and probably wouldn't have gotten out if not or friends like that. So would you talk a bit about the Wilcox train robbery, which happened on the morning of June 2nd, 1899? And what role did Charlie Sabringo play in the investigation? Well, first of all, I my first awareness of Sabringo was when I was a boy, and I saw Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, and there were these mysterious guys who keep chasing them and keep chasing them, and, and finally the, the Paul Newman slash Butch Cassidy says, who are those guys? And that's the thing they keep saying throughout the film. And it wasn't until years later I learned one of them was Charlie Seringo. I mean, he's not, in the, he's not in the exact gang that would have been chasing him as close as that, but he was part of the national search uh, that went after the Wild Bunch gang, after really after this lo- this robbery in Wilcox, Wyoming, in June second, eighteen ninety nine. Uh, what William Pinkerton did when that came about was he dispatched his two best cowboy detectives, which was 
W.O. Billy Sales and his sometime partner, Syringo. And they, they, they followed the gang for four years and uh, 25,000 miles. Not all on horseback, but if you add it all up, as he did, the, the train robbing gang would have included Cassidy, uh, Ben Ta- Tall Texan, Kilpatrick, Harvey Logan, Kid Curry, George News Carver, and uh, famously Harry Lombau, the Sundance Kid. Uh, they then hit another train on that line at the Tipton. And the one of my other favorite things that I found out was true was, you know, if you've ever seen the film or if you've seen it four times, as I have, there's the famous messenger who won't uh, open the door and they blow up the, the car and he slightly concussed, comes out, uh, George Woodcock. That was a real guy, and sure enough, he, they did rob his train again, and the second time he did come out. But uh, it's just sort of things like that that you think, surely William Goldman made that up for the script. But no, that is, that is what happened. We will be back after these brief messages. And we are back once again. So Syringo was especially obsessed with Harvey Logan a.k.a. Kid Curry, who is a a particularly volatile member of the Wild Bunch. Well, what's interesting about Kid Curry is, you know, when they started out, a lot of the lawmen thought that it was the Kid Curry gang. And we think of it now because of the movie and other reasons as the Butch Cassidy gang. But, But the Kid Curry gang was the initial thing they thought they were chasing. But what's interesting about him is that he and Syringo, they do look, they, they were they were similarly dark-complected, mustached, uh, short men of the range, you know? And there's my, my, perhaps my favorite part in writing this book was when he appeared in Utah, he and, and, and Sales, they came, they came out of the desert. They're covered in dust, disguised as prospectors. They had pack horses, they had, uh, you know, pans, and they were so uh, rugged looking that the, the sheriff in this town had the, the hotel surrounded to arrest them because he clearly they thought he was Kid Curry who had just robbed this train that you referenced. Uh, they had to explain, no, we're prospectors, we're, you know, <laughs> we're on our way to the, into the hills to see what we can get. Uh, and they finally were let free. But I thought there's something interesting about uh, being so undercover that you are arrested as the person that you are seeking. I just, I just think that's when you're, when you're really undercover is when you are mistaken for the person you're after. How did Kid Curry die? Uh, Kid Curry was, was shot in a, in a fine, well, he was shot and then probably shot himself he was in such pain uh in colorado a final a final uh, robbery job and he and syringo were at one point in the same saloon right well he he was observed by him syringo was when he was in a bar and harvey logan looked out from the back of the bar and said who is that because he was not fooled and thought that he seemed, what does he say, too wide awake to be a common, a common criminal. 
So he was suspicious uh, uh, that he was not all that he was pretending. I, I, I enjoyed writing about this relationship because he became so obsessed. And even after Kid Curry's reported death, he refused to believe that he was dead. And when after even after he retired from the Pinkertons, there was a robbery in Arizona, and he was convinced that that was it had all the the earmarks of a Kid Curry bank robbery. And so he he went down there and chased around for two weeks and couldn't find him and couldn't prove it. But uh, I think to the end he thought he was alive. It was just like a, 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 when you're a missing limb, it just feels like it's still there and you can't stop thinking it's there. Right. So why does Syringo part ways with the Pinkertons? Well, there's a famous trial of, of Bill Haywood and others, of uh, the uh, mining executives, mining union executives, uh, in Boise in uh, 1907. And at that trial, Clarence Darrow basically put the Pinkerton organization and James McParlin in particular on trial for all their anti-union sins. And I, I can't prove that that sped up his retirement, but he did retire right after that, as if he knew all that, but um, hadn't heard it all said in one place like that before. <laughs> also, he had, Seringo, that is, become such a public figure at the trial because he was guarding the um, assassin, Harry Orchard, who had, who had blown up the former governor, Stonenberg, who had been blown up in front of his house, and he would escort him to, to and from the, the courthouse to visit him Seringo had to bring you in, uh, and he was in the newspapers all the time. And I think it was be hard to go back to undercover work after having become so public. They also they the they offered him um, sort of branch head jobs, and he had no interest in uh, running an office. Uh, he just didn't think it was very exciting. Uh, so he retired and promptly started to write his his uh, memoirs, which was uh, the struggle of the rest of his life, was <laughs> publishing, being sued by the Pinkertons, publishing another one, being sued by the Pinkertons. Um, but that's, that was his life to write about, is how he saw it. And despite the fact that the Pinkertons were in the crosshairs of Clarence Darrow, Seringo still alerted Darrow to a possible lynching. That's right. At the at the end, even though Pinkerton's lost, and, and after Darrow's eight-hour summation, he did hear that a train full of uh, vigilantes was on their way to hang Darrow and the whole legal team and and the defendants. Uh, and so he went to the hotel in Boise. He alerted Parlin, who had alerted the governor. And he went to the train and, and talked them down when they arrived. So more than anybody, Seringo had been in so many of these situations himself where it, uh, he was discovered and a mob came to uh, throw him down the mine shaft or, uh, or hang him that he could identify and didn't wish that to happen to, to Darrow just because he, as he said, uh, believed in the underdog. Right. 
So Seringo continues pursuing his writing career, penning a book called Pinkerton's Cowboy Detective, which puts him at odds with his former employer. Well, that, that was the original title was the correct Pinkerton's Cowboy Detective. They then took him to court and he, it's, it took about two years of struggling in court. Every client's name had to be changed. Uh, even his boss had to be changed from McParland to McCartney. And Pinkerton had to be changed to Dickinson. Uh, so it ended up as just a, a, a cowboy detective. 22 years with the Dickinson National Detective Agency, which everyone knew was incorrect. But the the rest of the anecdotes were so authentic, whether the names were correct or not, that uh, it was was very popular and it was a big influence on the hard-boiled fiction writers because these were, you know, real detecting cases. The guy comes into a town who needs, needs to be liberated from a gang of thugs he works for the client, whichever side is the client. These are the stories that became the op stories with, with Hammett, which significantly Hammett never mentions Pinkerton in his stories. It's, it's just the continental op agency. And I think he took uh, as evidence of <laughs> what had happened to, Pink, to uh, Syringo as, uh, as don't, don't, mention, don't mention the Pinkertons and you'll be okay. So what prompts his move to Los Angeles, to, to Hollywood? Well, he was pretty broke from all his lawsuits, and he uh, got bronchitis in 1921 on his last hunt into the mountains of, uh, around uh, uh, Santa Fe. And so he finally had to give up the ranch and um, put down his horse and, and sell, sell his remaining animals. Uh, and he went to California. He stayed with his daughter uh, for the worst of it. Um, then when he was recovered enough, uh, a couple of months there, he had gotten a letter from one of his old friends, Dr. Pelton, that he should come out to Hollywood because there was nobody with his skills at riding, shooting, roping, uh, making movies. And so he got out there probably a little too late for that kind of stunt work, but uh, he had so much, so much authentic tales that he could, he could offer the movie makers that he, you know, he started making the rounds, uh, selling his self-published books out of a satchel and uh, you know, everybody, he he made friends so easily. Uh, They would take him around and to parties in the Hollywood Hills. Nobody really hired him until uh, William S. Hart finally did, uh, which is surprising to me because there were so many unauthentic movies being made at that time. You would think that having the, the okay of Charlie Syringo on your script would, would, uh, would have helped it. But I guess there was such a, people were so crazy for cowboy stories, no, no matter what kind of stories they were, uh, they, didn't, they didn't need his specific story. And he wasn't... He wasn't famous for being himself because he'd always been all these other characters. He wasn't like Wyatt Earp or, or um, Bat Masterson. He, he, was, uh, he had been many other people undercover in, on the West. He, he becomes kind of a drugstore cowboy, right? Uh, what, what is a drugstore cowboy exactly? And, and does Syringo fit the definition? Well, 
there was a cowboy bar at the time called the Waterhole, which was walking distance of his apartment in Hollywood. And uh, if before there was a casting office, uh, if you needed if you needed cowboys for tomorrow's uh, western out on the Paramount Ranch or something, you would come by there and and uh, and grab a few and and pay them a day rate and give them a lunch. By 1929. Uh, the waterhole was closed and the place to hang around waiting for cowboy work had moved to an actual drugstore near the Paramount lot. And that's where the, that's where the phrase comes from. They were allowed to use the phone there and call in to see if there's any work. Uh, they could eat cheaply. They could see, you know, which of their friends was, was there and might have a tip about a place to get work that day. And that's where the, the, the cowboy, the um, drugstore cowboy phrase comes from. I don't know that it would have applied to actual cowboys like him, but those that were hanging around waiting for, <laughs> waiting for work in cowboy movies, yes. And he dies in 1928. Is his career remembered in obituaries or, or does he die in obscurity? Well, it's it's funny the the uh, he he did he did get obituaries, but he had just gotten a lot of press for his last book, uh, Riata and Spurs, which he had uh, through some of his Hollywood friends, he had uh, convinced Houghton Mifflin that he could do a final book, all his autobiographies in one. He could tell the cowboy story. The detective story, and all, and and that it was long enough from the, since the last one that the Pinkertons would let him tell everything with the real names, and they said, "Well, that's that sounds great." Then this, and he seemed like such a genial old guy, and uh, this book came out. It got it got uh, wonderful reviews. It was a you know he was seen as a symbol of the the lost frontier of everybody's grandfather's stories, you know. But the Pinkertons had not forgotten. And so as soon as it came out, they started getting letters from this, their, their lawyer, John Brown, uh, who cited all the previous injunctions. And the po- poor Houghton Miffin had to, they had to take out about 100 pages of the book and replace it with what he had hoped would be his subsequent book called Bad Men of the Old West. Uh, so that much of his detecting stuff came out altogether. So if you are writing a book about Syringo, for instance, it's very useful to get the first edition of Riata and Spurs, which I did. It's cost about $200 because then you can do, you can check all the names that were changed in the other books or the edition that exists now of Cowboy Detective in, in paperback. It's all, those are all changed names. And a lot of them make their way into Western history books. Uh, as if they're the real the real deal. There's like these two um, mining executives who were blown up, and he he did a, an investigation of a dynamite ring in Tuscarora, Nevada, and they changed those names. And you'll see those come up again and again in book in books about Syringo or articles about Syringo, as if those were their real names. But they're they're perfectly easy <laughs> to look up in an old newspaper. So, so is there a place we can go maybe to catch a glimpse of Charlie Syringo in a film? Ah, he did uh, have a few seconds in William S. Hart's final film, 
tumbleweeds, which if you do go on YouTube, it's about 57, 58 minutes into the film. It depends on which, uh, which version. There's a newer one where he's like a couple minutes earlier than that. But anyway, you see him. He's got a big hat. He's so uh, leathery and tan. He's sort of shiny. And he's playing some mysterious instrument that's out of frame. And I make the point in the book that this movie failed uh, for one reason was he, uh, Hart wouldn't cut it down from eight reels to five, which is what um, the producers wanted. But if he had done that, he certainly would have cut out weird little cameos of his friends, like the well, like like Seringo's appearance. But so thank God he did. He, he didn't uh, cut it down. Uh, although it's too bad because it would then it be, was the last film he made. It was such a um, a failure. But it's pretty great to see to see Seringo up there in this, this uh, Caldwell Saloon. It's the night before the big um, Oklahoma race. And, you know, there he is. He's not big as life. He's little, he's, he's a little guy, but he's, um, it's, it's sort of miraculous to see him. Wow. Did you have to, uh, search for him? Uh, I did. I had always heard that he was in the film, but I, I, uh, it took me a while because he's, you, you can miss it if you, uh, too, if you're too impatient. <laughs> right. But he's, but he, for one thing, he looks so uncomfortable that he's obviously not one of the actors and he's so old that he's obviously not one of the actors. So after a while you sort of figure out, well, that's <laughs> must be him. Wow. <laughs> Gosh, it's so uh, fun to, to learn about him. He, he's not one of the, the more well-known old West characters, but he, he certainly should be. Don't, don't you think? I mean, not for his lack of trying. He, I mean, if you publish five autobiographies and people still don't know you, then that's, that's on them. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. So for people who want to connect with you, learn more about your work, where is the best place to go? Sure. I mean, I have a, a, I have a website, a website uh, uh, NathanWardWriter.com. Uh, or they could do things through through uh, Grove Atlantic. You could go through them. Oh, but on the website, on that w- website, it has the um, the way to get get in contact with me. Excellent. Well, I so appreciate your time today. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me. Again, I have been speaking to Nathan Ward. He is the author of Son of the Old West. The Odyssey of Charlie Seringo, cowboy, detective, writer of The Wild Frontier. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.